Well, a few weeks ago, we began a brief series. This is the second of three sermons on the theme of the spiritual gifts as we see them in chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians. We've been making our way through 1 Corinthians for the better part of this year, and we've discussed it under the theme of church challenges. And we've come to the section in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 where Paul deals with the challenge of worship. And from time to time, we've kind of jumped out of 1 Corinthians to deal with the topics that 1 Corinthians raises as we make our way through it. And that's where we find ourselves. So if you're a guest this morning and haven't been with us in the 1 Corinthians series, we're in the midst of a little bit of a topical, more instructional series of how to make sense of what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I've entitled the brief series Charismatic Controversy. Um, as I explained a couple of sermons ago, uh, sermons ago, um, charismata, which is where we get the word charismatic from, is, is just the term for spiritual gifts. And so there's controversy both in the church here at Corinth in terms of how Paul is telling the Corinthians to use their spiritual gifts and how they're using them. But there's also in the church today about what are we to make of the gifts that Paul talks about here? Prophecy and tongues and all of this, and there's, there's lots of debate about that and even disagreement among God's people about how we should think about those things. In 1 Corinthians 4, deals with the two probably most controversial of the gifts, which is prophecy and tongues. This week, what I want to do is talk about prophecy, and next week, Lord willing, talk about tongues, and we'll pick up our 1 Corinthians exposition going to two camps that God's people find themselves in related to the issue of the miraculous spiritual gifts. Those two camps, cessationists, cessationists believe that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, in terms of their function in this age, have largely ceased. That's where you get the word cessationist from. We're not thinking about prophecy in the Spurgeon's life, which he saw as a manifestation of the gift of prophecy, and that, that prophet, the gift of prophecy still resides with the church. Now, Charles Spurgeon, as far as I know, never uses the word prophecy to refer to what happened to him, um, and I'm going to share with you what happened to him and give you a historical snapshot of the kind of thing that some people think Paul is talking about when he talks about prophecy. Here's what Spurgeon writes. While preaching in the hall on one occasion... I deliberately pointed to a man in the midst of the crowd and said, There is a man sitting here who is a shoemaker. He keeps his shop open on Sundays. It was open last Sabbath morning. He took nine pence, and there was a four pence profit out of it. His soul is sold to Satan for four pence. Pretty bold for Spurgeon to say that in the midst of a sermon he's preaching. I don't think I've ever done that. <laughs> I've never felt compelled to do that. I would be to think that that would be the case. The man said, I did take my pence that day, and four pence was just profit. But how should no I can tell? Then it struck me that it was God who had opened my soul through him, so I thought what I said was right except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to their friends, come see a man that told me all things that I ever did. This continuationist writer, quoting that particular event in Spurgeon's life, concludes, 
earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So are the events, like the one that Spurgeon describes, proof that prophecy is still around? I don't think so, and I'll give my thoughts on Spurgeon's experience near the end of the sermon today. But before that, I want to do two things in this morning's sermon. First of all, I want us to see three things that Paul teaches about prophecy here in 1 Corinthians 14. And second, I want us to see three takeaways from that teaching, three applications. So our outline is pretty simple, pretty brief. Three aspects of prophecy. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 14 to get those. And then three applications of prophecy from what we see in 1 Corinthians 14. First of all, three aspects of prophecy. Let me give you a definition. I think that's helpful on the front end. I want to give you a definition of what I mean by prophecy when I'm using the word prophecy. And I think this is what Paul means as I'll show you and unpack the definition as we go. New Testament prophecy can be defined as the following. First of all, a miraculous act of intelligible communication that people understand. That's first of all. It's a miraculous act of intelligible communication that people understand. Secondly, it's rooted in spontaneous divine revelation from God. And thirdly, it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. So let me read you, give you the three aspects of the definition again. Prophecy can be defined as a miraculous act of intelligible communication, people understand it, rooted in spontaneous divine revelation, God gives it, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Is that what we see in 1 Corinthians 14? Well, let's take a look. Because Paul provides a lot of information for how we are to think about prophecy in this chapter. So I want to give you three of those aspects and show you where I get them in 1 Corinthians 14. So hopefully you have your Bible open. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 14 for the next couple of minutes. First of all, first aspect. Prophecy is a miraculous act of intelligible communication. To begin with, Paul clearly views prophecy as superior to the gift of tongues because of its intelligibility. Because it can be clearly understood by the people who are listening to it. Look at verse 3 again. On the other hand, the one who prophesies, in contrast to the one who speaks in tongues, speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. He says speaks to people. Prophecy speaks to people. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 1-6, which we've already read, we see how Paul prized prophecy above tongues because the former was intelligible while the latter was not, at least without interpretation. According to 1 Corinthians 14, 20-25, unbelievers who enter the church assembly may comprehend prophecies, but they may see tongues as evidence of insanity. Look at verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? In verse 31, prophecy results in learning and encouragement. We've already seen that in verse 3, but look at verse 31. Paul says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that and all may be encouraged. And then in verse 29, Paul tells us that prophecy can be weighed by others. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said, which probably implies a judgment 
based on content what the prophet is. So prophecy, according to Paul, simply is intelligible speech. It is a miraculous speech that God gives, but nevertheless, it's communication of content that can be understood by everyone there. Second, prophecy is rooted in spontaneous divine revelation. In several texts, Paul also ties prophecy to divine revelation. Look again at verse 30. He says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, that is a revelation from God, let the first be silent. And he connects that to prophecy in verse 31. This text also suggests that the revelation is spontaneous. It's not the direct result of preparation or study. It's something that happened in the moment. The connection between prophecy and revelation is also indicated in verse 6, where Paul says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? And despite being somewhat hyperbolic, in chapter 13, verse 2, Paul also suggests that prophecy involves spontaneous revelation when he says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. So first of all, prophecy is a miraculous act of intelligible communication, but secondly, prophecy is rooted in spontaneous divine revelation from God. Thirdly, prophecy is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Notice chapter 12, two chapters back, in verses 6 and 10, prophecy is listed among the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 of chapter 12, there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them in everyone. Verse 10, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. So Paul describes the gift of prophecy as distributed by the one and the same spirit for the common good of the church. So the basis of this overview, I think, suggests that the activity of prophesying, according to Paul, fits with the definition we gave at the beginning that it involves communication that's intelligible in content, that it's empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that it's done in, conjunct in conjunction with some sort of spontaneous reception of divine revelation and therefore lines up well with the definition, I think, that we gave on the beginning. So that's three aspects of prophecy. Now, what are the applications that flow from that? If prophecy is a miraculous act of intelligible communication, what does that imply? If prophecy is rooted in spontaneous divine revelation, what does that imply? And if prophecy is empowered by the Holy Spirit, what does that imply? Well, I want to give you three of them. Second point, three applications of prophecy. And this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. First of all, I think an application of what we've seen about the nature of prophecy is that prophecy is faultless in nature. Now, some will take issue with that argument about the cessation of prophecy, claiming that the New Testament pro prophets still exist in the way they do in 1 Corinthians 14 today. Many of my continuationist friends whom I love and respect argue that the words of New Testament prophets, prophets according to 1 Corinthians 14 can be mixed with error. And thus the gift of prophecy still exists today, but it's not inherently without error or authoritative. And the major argument for this position, in their view, is that believers are encouraged in 1 Corinthians 14 to weigh prophecies, to assess them, 
Again, look at verse 29 of chapter 14. This is the kind of the hinge of where this argument rests. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. We see something similar in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, where Paul says that we are to judge prophecies. So, if, it's, if we're commanded to assess prophecies, what does that mean? Is it the prophecies that are judged or the prophets who are judged? If the prophecies need to be sifted and there's errors in the prophecy, then what does that communicate to us about the nature of prophecy as we've seen it in 1 Corinthians 14? In fact, continuationists like Andrew Wilson, whom I love and respect, acknowledges that this is the strongest criticism of his position of continuationism. He says, the strongest criticism of continuationism is the argument that New Testament prophecy is without error. If New Testament prophecy is infallible and foundational and associated with the infallible and foundation witness of the apostles, then claims to fallible prophecy or changeable or error-prone or possible prophecy today cannot be sustained as biblical. But that's exactly the argument I want to make this morning. I would like to explain briefly why why I believe that New Testament prophecy to be the same as Old Testament prophecy in the way Paul thinks about it here in 1 Corinthians 14. That is, it's without error. The criteria in determining whether God was speaking through a prophet in the Bible was whether or not the prophecy came true or not. We see this in Deuteronomy 18, that the mark of true prophets is that their prophecies actually come true. If their prophecies contain errors, they will be to be rejected as false prophets. Deuteronomy 18.22 says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. When Hananiah prophesies in Jeremiah 28 that the articles of the temple would be restored in two years, Jeremiah is vindicated as a true prophet and Hananiah is exposed as a sham when Jeremiah prophesies Hananiah's death and Hananiah died that same year. This is also confirmed in the case of Samuel when we read in 1 Samuel 3.19 that none of Samuel's words fell to the ground. Samuel was confirmed as a prophet because his prophecies were always fulfilled. And remember what we saw a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 2 where Peter was preaching and fulfillment of Joel 2 that God's people would prophesy. He's referring to Old Testament prophecy. It's the same kind of prophecy in Joel 2 as in Acts 2 that Peter is predicting. But for people who would say that prophecy is fallible or mixed with error, can't base that on Acts 2 because that's based on Joel 2 which is based on the Old Testament view of prophecy, which is that prophets are without error. I hope you're following my form of thinking there. Why is this so important? Because the continuationist who believes in a New Testament prophecy that's mixed with error, while claiming a fuller work of the Spirit in the New Testament, has to hold to what I view as a lesser view of prophecy than what occurred in the Old Testament. Let that sink in for a moment. Among those in the continuationist orbit, not every word from the Lord given by one gifted with prophecy is actually true or should be expected to be absolutely true. By implication, an ongoing sign of the Holy Spirit's true presence in the church 
and by extension in believers, is reduced to a fallible and probabilistic sign. Can a true prophecy of the Holy Spirit ever be wrong? Well, one continuationist will respond to to that by saying that Old Testament prophecy functions not to... It's therefore possible, they would even say common, for Old Testament prophesying not to involve infallible divine revelation, but to mark out only those whom the Spirit of God is at work. But in the Old Testament, the mark of someone being indwelt by the Spirit of God is whether what they say actually happens. You can't entirely separate what is being said from the one saying it. The continuationists would respond that while the prophetic revelation is inerrant, the prophet's reporting of that revelation can be flawed. But this fundamentally misunderstands the role of prophets who not only receive an errant revelation, but who are enabled by the Holy Spirit to communicate it without error. This is precisely the reason the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is so necessary. As the Apostle Peter writes, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So if it's coming from the, whole, the human will, it's not prophecy according to Peter. The Holy Spirit not only reveals the Word, He enables the prophet to speak from God and hence for God. To not deny that this is the case would not only cause problems for prophecy, it would cause problems for the truthfulness of the Bible. However, some scholars believe that we have an evidence of prophets making mistakes in the case of Agabus in Acts 21. Now, they claim that the prophet was wrong to predict that Paul would be bound by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles, according to their reading. And the apostle was, in fact, bound by Romans, and he was rescued by the Jews. It's argued that such an accuracy must exemplify fallible New Testament prophecy. But several problems, I think, plague this line of interpretation. Let me give them to you briefly. First of all, the prophet explicitly claims that he speaks the words of the Holy Spirit in Acts 21. Indeed, we have to ask what role it would be to play in Luke's narrative to note that Agabus made a mistake. The whole purpose of the story is to explain how Paul got to Rome just as the Holy Spirit said he would. Secondly, those who see errors in New Testament prophecy say that the events didn't turn out as Agabus prophesied since Paul was rescued from the Jews, not handed over by them. But when Paul recounts to the Jews in Jerusalem what happened to him in Rome, he uses the very word handed over in Acts 28, 17 that Agabus used in making the prophecy in Acts 21, 11. Paul's words may echo Agabus' prediction indicating that the apostle was satisfied with the prophet's accuracy. A second example of prophecy mixed with error that's often given is Acts 21, 4 and Acts 21, 12 and 13. Paul's friends tell him not to go to Jerusalem through the Spirit. And since it is predicted that he will suffer there, Paul insists on going to Jerusalem and claims that he's led by the Spirit in his decision in Acts 19, 21, and 22. And those who think New Testament prophecy is mixed with error say, we have a clear example here of an error in prophecy. Brothers and sisters, in Acts 21, 4, the prophecy is correct. Paul would suffer. But the inference drawn from the prophecy that Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem is mistaken. The inference drawn from the prophecy was not part of the prophecy. It was an inference of the prophecy. 
Thus, the prophecy that Paul would face suffering in Jerusalem was accurate and spirit-inspired, and the conclusion that people drew from the prophecy that Paul should not travel to Jerusalem, well, that was not inspired. That was mistaken. That was their implication that they thought the prophecy led to. It did not come from the Spirit. And it wasn't Luke's purpose in Acts to be precise about the nature of prophecy. He's recounting a narrative. And he assumed that his readers would be precise or he assumed that his readers would realize that prophecy is never in error since it isn't in the Bible. C.K. Barrett gets it right when he says, Luke does not express himself clearly. His words taken strictly would mean either that Paul was deliberately disobedient to the will of God or that the Spirit was mistaken in the guidance given. It is unthinkable that Luke intended either of these. In the end, any attempt to distinguish Old Testament prophecy from New Testament prophecy is not persuasive because the only way to determine whether a person is a true prophet in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is by assessing the prophecy. Paul tells the church in 1 Corinthians 14 to evaluate prophecies because the church distinguished, needs to distinguish between true and false prophets. Thus, 1 Corinthians 14.29 probably refers to make distinctions between prophecies rather than making distinctions. So if New Testament prophets make mistakes... What does that say about our ability to determine who the true prophets are? It would make it impossible. Because true prophets and false prophets can make mistakes. So how do we know who the true prophets are if we can't evaluate the prophecies for their accuracy? You see my point? Those who prophesied falsely could protest their genuine prophets since true prophets make mistakes. There's no indication in the Bible of a change between Old and New Testament prophecy on this point. And if you alter it to 14, 20, and 30 basket for that argument, or one verse about weighing prophecies, it's a lot for verse to carry. We've got the whole Bible teaching. So, what are we to make of prophecy then? If prophecy is without error, if it's given by direct, spontaneous, divine revelation, what are we to think about that role today? Well, the second application, I think, that flows from this view is that the church is built on the foundation of apostles and their teaching and prophets and their prophecy, as Ephesians 2.20 says. And that foundation has been deposited for us in the Scriptures, and the biblical revelation was concluded with the writing of the New Testament. When Paul was writing 1 Corinthians 14, prophets were still functioning because all divine revelation had not been given him. The scriptures had not been completed. And since the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and that foundation has been laid as the apostles and prophets unpack the significance of the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no need for apostles and prophets today because we don't need any further revelation now that we have the whole New Testament. The authoritative apostolic and prophetic teaching that we need. And therefore, the apostle and prophet are no longer needed in the way they were in the first century. Now recognize for the New Testament to be established and recognized. The early churches didn't have the complete canon of Scripture for some time, and hence an authoritative and infallible prophetic ministry was needed to lay the foundation for the church in those early days, in those early centuries even. So we can't pinpoint the exact date in which prophecy ended. It faded away slowly as Scripture was completed and the New Testament was established and recognized in various places. 
But since both apostles and prophets were involved in laying the foundation of God's revelation in Christ, their, their function is finished in that sense. Both apostles and prophets spoke the infallible word of God. Now, if apostles don't exist today, and if prophets spoke infallible words like the apostles, and if the church is built on their foundation, then there are good grounds to conclude that the gift of prophecy, as it's expressed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, has ceased in some measure as well. The foundation has been laid once for all in the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. No more apostles or prophets will arise. And the work of laying that foundation, which culminated in the completion of the New Testament, is finished. No further word from God is needed or sought. So then, let's go back to the beginning of my sermon. What are we to make of the event from the ministry of Charles Spurgeon that I referenced at the beginning of the sermon? Is that not spontaneous divine revelation? Is that not prophecy? Well, Charles Spurgeon didn't say it was. He, in fact, was a cessationist, and he didn't think he had the gift of prophecy, but... He identified the experience, and I identify the experience as an impression of the Holy Spirit. See, he believed God would sometimes impress things on someone's heart. I believe that. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is living and active within the lives of the people of God, and he can impress real realities on people's hearts. I believe the Lord used those experiences, and he can do such today. God can use such impressions, sometimes in friends. I love my continuation as brothers and sisters, and I love what they are after, a real response to the present ministry of the Holy Spirit in the assembly. But I just don't call that prophecy. I call it impressions. I don't think it's the biblical gift of prophecy. God-given impressions aren't the same thing as prophecy. Now, I want to show you one such example of what I think is an impression in our own book of the Bible here that we're in in 1 Corinthians. Would you turn over two chapters to 1 Corinthians 16? Here's, I think, an example of an impression similar to something that Spurgeon experienced. And it's not called prophecy. It's just an impression. Look at 1 Corinthians 16. Paul is giving directions and talking to the Corinthian church in some concluding ways about his plans for travel and what he's going to be doing. And then notice verse 12. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. I, I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apollos, I strongly urge you. someone to do something, usually in the Bible, that's not just his own fleshly self-interest. It's because he feels like that is going to be really critical and helpful for the progress of the gospel and the health of the church. And yet, Apollo says, eh, not going to do it. At least not right now. So Paul thinks Apollo should come to Corinth immediately, and Apollos disagrees. Paul does not claim to be prophesying in this instance. He just urges Apollos to go. He had a sense, he had a conviction, but Paulus did not think the time was right. So Paul says, 
He's free to make that decision. So what most people call prophecy in churches today, in my judgment, isn't the New Testament gift of prophecy. Since I think, as I've shown you, New Testament prophecy is infallible. That is without error. It's better to characterize what's happening today as sharing an impression from the Holy Spirit. And if you're not sure it's from the Holy Spirit, just say, give your counsel. This is my hunch. This is my thoughts on that. And this isn't just word games. Because the word impression is actually a better description than prophecy. Because impressions may be a mix of truth and error, and those impressions that are wrong don't make someone a false prophet, because I don't think impressions are prophecies anyway. Jonathan Edwards, though, cautions us. When he was writing during the Great Awakening, in which there was much legitimate work of the Holy Spirit being done, and there was many impressions of the Holy Spirit being given, Nevertheless, as he observed all these things that were happening in the New England area during that time of revival, he cautioned us not to overestimate impressions so that we mistake them for the voice of God. Here's what Edwards said about that. Many godly persons have undoubtedly, in this and other ages, exposed themselves to woeful delusions by an aptness to lay too much weight on impulses and impressions as if they were immediate revelations from God to signify something future, to direct them where to go or what to do. I would therefore entreat the people of God to be very cautious how they give heed to such things. I have seen them fail in very many instances and know the ex- by experience that impressions being made with great power and upon the minds of true saints are no sure signs of their being revelations from heaven. End quote. So what is a surer path forward? What is a better way? I think 2 Peter 1, 19 describes it for us. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So what's the application for us, brothers and sisters? We have a prophetic word more sure that we need to pay greater attention to which means be in your Bible. Absorb the prophecy of Scripture. Absorb the Bible. Get it into your bloodstream. So third application then, the final word of prophecy. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. See, we don't have any new revelation because the final and definitive revelation has been given in Jesus Christ. And the next event in is to have our nose in the Bible all the time? Well, no. Second Peter 3, 11-18 tells us how we're supposed to live now. And with these verses, I'll conclude and pray. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting. We can even say according to His prophecy. According to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent. Spot or blemish. Peace. Is that you this morning?
so that you could be saved. Look at the very next verse. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. This is what the Lord wants. You to be saved, even this morning. Not to struggle over whether New Testament prophecy or Old Testament prophecy are the same or one's mixed with error and one isn't. He wants you to know this. Jesus Christ has come. He has lived. He has died. He has risen again. He is the one and only Savior and mediator between God and men. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. All in all salvation because in Him there is only there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that to you according to the wisdom given to Him. As He does in all His letters when He speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Wouldn't you agree with that as we made our way through 1 Corinthians? They're like, Paul, I get you, but I don't get you. And I'm encouraged because an apostle said that about the writings of Paul. And if Peter can say that about the apostle, uh, the apostle Paul, we should be able to say it as well. Some things are difficult to understand. And 1 Corinthians 14 is way up there on the list for me. But notice, Peter says, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter was confident that Paul was writing scripture. He was confident that the words of the apostle were inspired, and were in the Scriptures. And we are as well, even if we struggle to understand all that he's saying. Peter concludes, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's your mission. That's our mission together. As a church, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your prophetic word more sure that You have given us in the Scriptures. Thank You for all the ministry of the prophets down through the years. We don't despise their ministry. We rest upon it. We build upon it. We live upon it. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of the prophet that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, we listen to and we adhere to and we obey and we strive to know and follow because we see in it the very word of our God to us. We thank you for the Old Testament prophets. We thank you for the New Testament prophets. We thank you for the gift of prophecy which was given to the church so that the word of God might be established and confirmed and given to us and the faith might be delivered once for all to the saints. And we thank you that you've delivered it to us in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that we have your word of prophecy. But anything that's said in this sermon that is wrong or out of place, even 